Welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com, a new series of podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail, the oldest long-distance hiking trail in the United States. We are podcasting from Camp Rough and Tumble in Faston, Vermont, our hiking home in the Green Mountains. I'm Ruff, and my wife, who is also my hiking partner, is Tumble. Today's podcast recalls my hike of AT Section 2, Vermont Route 12 to Hanover, New Hampshire, 22.3 miles. Here we go for part two of my quest to complete all the White Blaze Trail in Vermont. Tumble dropped me off at the Route 12 trailhead around 8.30 a.m. We drove through lots of fog, and it still hadn't burned off when I waved goodbye to her as she drove off, and I started on the trail. The trail went south through some tall grass just below the road, and then climbed up to the guardrail where there was a wooden step, so you could step up, put your other foot on top of the guardrail, and then hop down and across the road. Very thoughtful. I scooted straight across the path leading into the woods at the base of Dana Hill. I was only a few minutes out of the lazy comfort of the car, and here I was leaning into a steep hill. The woods were wet, but it was not raining. Since the trail was basically smooth, I had to dig my toes into the dirt to get a grip on the steep portions. I probably looked like a ballerina on steroids. After about twenty minutes, I seemed to have reached the top and started through some swells that took me up, then down, then up again. The woods were open, and the whole area had a certain beauty to it. I passed a tree on my right and looked down at a pile of fresh sawdust. Upon further inspection, I saw three fresh holes in the tree that had undoubtedly been recently pecked. Five minutes later, I looked up and saw a female hiker chugging up the hill. She told me that she had been on the trail for two months, had started in Maine, had, had, and had just said goodbye to her boyfriend and hiking partner, who had to, quote, go back to work. I remarked that the trail in this section was real nice, and she agreed, adding that it was, quote, pretty easy. She also said it that at this point in her hike, she was considering heading north from Main Junction and hiking the Long Trail up to Canada because she didn't, quote, need to go to Georgia. As we parted, I turned back and asked her trail name. Wild Thing was her reply. Whoa! Unbeknownst to me, Wild Thing would be the only hiker I would encounter until I arrived at the evening shelter. I hiked down Dana Hill crossed a dirt road named Woodstock Stage Road, crossed a small wooden bridge with handrails that looked none too sturdy, and then crossed an open field with a view back up the hill. Then I went back into the woods and sailed along a smooth, wide trail for about half an hour. Next, I descended another open field, which featured a most difficult and deep area of mud and water, half covered by grass and scrubby bushes. I probed the area with my poles, and they would have sunk to the handles if I had let them. This was a very tricky area, and it seemed to appear out of nowhere. Where was the, quote, warning, gigantic, sucking mud pit masquerading as grassy field just ahead, prepare to disappear, end quote, sign? I studied and studied the area, tried to go around to no avail, and then quickly and gingerly stepped on the more sturdier grass and bushes, and literally tippy-toed through. I kept looking for A.T. Hiker's remains. I finally stepped on terra more firma, and soon climbed up to and crossed a narrow dirt road. 
The trail crossed the road and swept back uphill into the woods where, for the next half hour, I climbed through half woods, half meadows, and passed by plastic maple sap lines strung parallel to the trail. The lines then crossed over the trail, leaving me only inches of headroom. All of a sudden, the day brightened as I entered a large field. The trail went across the field, which featured a trail blaze on a stick, and then down to the dirt Bartlett Brook Road. If I wasn't paying attention, I could easily think I was experiencing the A.T. version of Groundhog Day. I had covered the first three miles in about two hours, forty minutes. As soon as I crossed the road and went through some high grass and bushes, I crossed a small footbridge over an equally small but running creek. My plan was to filter water when the opportunity presented itself, and preferably between 11 a.m. and noon. This was especially critical since I was on an unknown trail and couldn't be sure of my next opportunity for water. My current location satisfied all of my criteria, so I stopped, took off my pack, and retrieved my water filter, Nalgene bottle, and water bladder so I could fill up. After filtering and munching on a, mac on a snack of dried mango, I was packed up and ready to go. I've become efficient at the unpacking-filtering-packing routine, and I no longer hesitate when considering whether or not to stop. I went through some pretty woods and over a couple of hedgerows. The stone walls appeared to have been built a long time ago. Next, I broke out into an overgrown field with some nice views of a valley and road below. The trail crossed the field, and I was soon among yellow goldenrod growing over my head. It was as if I was a bug making my way through the grass. Oh no, honey, I shrunk the hiker. The air temperature was much higher in the meadow than in the woods, and the sun made me feel lazy as the sweet pollen smells surrounded me. Back in the woods, I quickly descended down a switchback to the wide Pomfret Brook running just below Pomfret South Pomfret Road a paved two-laner. I noted that once I crossed this road I would no longer have to say or read the word Pomfret. The brook featured a bridge of stones which I gingerly stepped across. This brook is also a good water source and I imagined that in times of heavy rains the water crossing would be much more difficult and might even conjure up that dreaded hiker's word, Ford. Across the road the trail entered the woods and I looked up and stared at a significant hill. The pine-needle-littered path was as smooth as could be, but the angle of ascent was daunting. My hand plunged into my pocket to retrieve my trusty map with the mountain profile for this section. Yes, I confirmed a steep climb, but it didn't look like it went on for long. I dug the toes of my boots into the soil, and up I went. Sure enough, in fifteen minutes I had reached the, quote, height of land, unquote. I have now taken to adopting the vague and sometimes misleading descriptions in the Long Trail Guide. I soon broke out into the open for a climb to the top of Dupuy Hill, which offered hilltop meadows and panoramic views of hills and valleys, none of which I could identify. Also rapidly converging on this very spot was a large dark cloud that appeared to be filled with menace and perhaps some significant rain and lightning. And so... Although I stood in the sunshine admiring the view, I decided to hasten my passage to the lower woods on the other side. I found a nice little safe spot and decided to stop for lunch and a cell phone call to my sweetie. I had good signal, dialed, and got the answering machine. I looked at my watch and realized that Tumble 
was having lunch with the ladies, so I left an uplifting message that I was okay, making good progress, and would call her again later. I didn't seem to be having much of a problem getting a signal along the AT. In central and northern Vermont, I had to rely more on smoke signals and carrier pigeons to communicate. Perhaps the Appalachian Trail Conference has more pull with Verizon Wireless than does the Green Mountain Club. Or perhaps we LTers are just more rugged than our AT counterparts. The clouds seemed to blow past while I was munching on tofurkey jerky, and I packed up and resumed my trek. I traversed a wide and relatively flat section that went across a slope that the guide referred to as part of the Old King's Highway. The trail was lined with tall, thick evergreens, and I was just cruising along taking in the scenery without having to focus on each foot placement. There seemed to be many sections like this on this AT-only portion of the trail here in Vermont. On my home turf, on the long trail, there is very little opportunity to soak it in while you're on the move, since you have to keep your eyes to the ground, else you risk disaster. Here, I had opportunities to sail through the woods and watch the trees, plants, hedgerows, and sky flow around me. The added dimension of motion helped me to feel fluid and to sink my consciousness into the landscape. I spotted another wooden orange sign with black letters and white blaze tacked to a tree and finally deciphered the logo of a big D with a little O on the left side of the D and a little C on the right. It stood for Dartmouth Outing Club, which is the organization that maintains this section of the trail. Orange and black are their colors, and their stewardship covers what the Long Trail Guide calls AT2, Vermont 12 to New Hampshire border, section of Vermont, plus part of the Appalachian Trail in New Hampshire. The trail veered off from the highway, climbed up, and soon entered another large meadow with more panoramic views. Once out of the forest canopy, I could see that the black cloud was still hovering in the western sky and just looking for a hiker to open up on. I really wasn't worried given the weather forecast of partly cloudy, and I knew the weather guys were never wrong. The meadow was thick with blackberry bushes that were bursting with fruit. I knew that if Tumble were with me, we would be spending a long time here, and she would be having fresh fruit for breakfast. Shortly after I left the meadow, I began to descend and stepped over a stone wall into what felt like someone's big backyard. I switched back across and down a hillside covered with grass and low-growing ferns toward the dirt-covered Cloudland Road. At a quarter past one, I had covered 5.5 miles with a little over two miles to go. I followed the road for about a tenth of a mile and then began a climb up around the edge of a field of thick green grass. There were a couple of hiker signs that read, quote, Please walk on edge of grass. That sure beats walking on the edge of my nerves. After edging around, the trail darted up into the woods. You haven't lived until you have seen a trail actually dart somewhere and continued up the hill. I hiked for about 15 minutes and arrived at the junction for the Cloudland Shelter. Apparently, it used to be an Appalachian Trail shelter and then was closed down in favor of the new Thistle Hill Shelter. Now, a typed message enclosed in plastic announced that the shelter was reopened to hikers. The hitch was that it was located six-tenths of a mile from the trail. I am curious, but not that curious, so I decided to keep on trucking towards Thistle Hill. After hiking for another half hour through some wet, buggy, and sometimes rocky trail, 
I started the ascent of the final hill of the day. Halfway up I stopped and called Tumble again, and she answered. I told her I was getting tired, but was also almost to the shelter. It was only 2 p.m., and I had plenty of time left in the day. She sounded good, and it was great to be out in the woods and still be able to hear her voice. I made it over the hill and reached the shelter junction at 2.35 p.m. The trail down was leaf-covered, and as I approached the shelter, I saw a hiker sitting in front. He was the first I had seen all day since the Sobo earlier that morning. He was an Appalachian Trail northbounder, Nobo, named Easy Sonic, and was taking an extended lunch break before moving on. We had a good chat, and he pointed the way to the water source, as adding that it was a good walk down, but that there was plenty of water. I walked around and picked out a hammock spot and began to set up. After I put up the hammock, Easy Sonic came over to check it out. He said he was carrying a Hennessy hammock and had not seen a Clark before. I answered his questions, and he said he was impressed with the pockets, bug net, and rainfly. After Easy Sonic left, I walked down, down, down to the water source, which was a mid-sized stream bed, mostly dry with a small seep and some decent pools a bit further downhill. I filled up the platypus water carrier plus the Nalgene and climbed back up to camp. The mosquitoes were active, but not too bad. As I sat in the shelter and cooked my dinner of instant black beans, a group of nobos steadily streamed into the area. I counted six young guys, all eight tiers, plus a guy and a gal that came in later in the afternoon. The guys were friendly, but basically non-communicative, answering me and each other with a preponderance of monosyllables. I got the impression that they had become trail-weary and were, by their own admission, quote, slowing down. Their trail names were Frank Burroughs, I didn't get the reference, Fancy Pants, Fancy That, Navigator, distinguished by the sword he stuck in his shirt behind his collar, I didn't ask, Pegasus, Hip Hop, and Jack. Frank B. set up his small, one-person, standalone MSR tent in the shelter. Fancy Pants, from New Hampshire, laid out his sleeping bag in the middle of the shelter. Hip Hop, hip -hop hung part of his Hennessy hammock on a hook inside the shelter, creating a sort of tent. Jack dropped his one-person tent right next to the shelter, and Navigator and Pegasus set up their tents in tenting areas above and behind the shelter. The couple that came in later, after completing a 20-mile-plus day, also set up their tent. Conversation around the area consisted of short clips of full of macho and light-on substance. Frank Burroughs did mention that he started on Springer the same day as Fancy Pants, but they didn't meet each other until the next day. It sounded as though all of them planned to hike into Hanover the next day. I took a trip down the privy path to admire and use this unique six-sided privy with the name Cloudland carved above the door. At shoulder's height when sitting, the privy featured a screened-in 360-degree view and was moved to the site when the old Cloudland shelter was closed. Afterwards, I sat around the shelter and mostly listened to the uninspired grunting until it started to get dark. Perhaps the highlight of the evening was when two of the guys took turns lighting their hands after they splashed them with stove alcohol. I have to remember to call Star Search. I said a good night and hopped into my hammock and got comfortable as the air began to cool off. The temperature stayed in the upper 50s, and I was quite comfortable as I finally drifted off into a night without incident. 
I awoke around 5.45 a.m. and waited for the sun to pop around 6 a.m. The shelter basically faced east, and my hammock was set up 50 feet behind it so I could see the sun's orange glow as it slowly rose between the trees just to the left of the shelter. I snapped a quick photo and began to break down my hammock and prep for the long day ahead. I planned to hike over 14 miles to the Connecticut River and then straight across the bridge into New Hampshire. My first interstate hike since Tumble and I started our end-to-end -end of the Long Trail in Massachusetts. As I walked over to the shelter to retrieve my hanging backpack and food bag, I realized that I was the only one stirring. I had become accustomed to eight-tiers being out of camp at first light, and this was certainly unusual. I was all packed up save for my kitchen items and was cooking my breakfast oatmeal on a bench in front of the shelter when Fancy Pants, Frank B., and Hip Hop began to move about. When I remarked a little later that no one seemed to be in a hurry to hit the trail, Frank B. replied, quote, Well, when you've been on the AT this long, one thing you learn is that the trail will always be there. Scintillating insight. Destined to be a classic. I'm so glad I'm able to remember it so I could write it down. I was the first out of camp and on the trail by 7.30, heading for the Granite State and, of course, my sweetie's arms. As first one out, I became the designated cobweb breaker. The day was clear and the trail was inviting. For once, I got to start downhill. I hiked down and crossed a stream and then moved across the side of a hill through the trees as the ground sloped above on my left side and below on my right. I ascended into an overgrown grassy meadow under a clear blue sky and caught glimpses of clouds nestled into the valleys below. Looking back west, I had a clear view of Thistle Hill, the site of my overnight stay. I descended back into the woods, and then I could see that the trail was about to enter another open area. And what an open area it was! I stepped into a wide green field, illuminated by the early morning light and surrounded on four sides by the woods. The path was narrow but smooth, and as I moved into the sunlight, the green hills below peeked through a blanket of soft white clouds. The grass glistened with morning dew and the air was clean and cool against my face. Moving forward required no effort on my part. I stopped and looked at all that surrounded me and thought how fantastic it was to be right here, to be alive, to be healthy enough to do this and to even have the opportunity to do this. I snapped photos in hopes of freezing the world so that I could keep the moment with me and somehow be able to retrieve it any time I wanted. There is such a thing as a runner's high, and this was the hiker's equivalent. I didn't always need to be standing atop a high peak, looking down on all I had conquered to get this feeling. Standing alone in a distant Vermont meadow on a summer's morning, bursting with color and vitality, was everything I could ever want on a hike. At that moment, I had no awareness that I was carrying a 25-pound pack, wearing the same clothes for a second day, was probably out of cell phone range, and had a long way to go before I could rest. I didn't think of bills to pay, my sore back, or responsibilities that needed shouldering. And if I did have any awareness of it, I couldn't have cared. I reached the end of the meadow and turned back to see where I had emerged from the woods. I wished so much that Tumble was there with me. I will come back here with her, again on a beautiful sunny summer's morn, and we will share this bounty that is our beautiful Vermont. In only five minutes, I crossed Joe Ranger Road and headed straight back into the woods. 
I began the climb up Bunker Hill through open woods populated with tall trees and patches of sunlight filled with numerous flowering plants. The descent down Bunker was followed by a series of ups and downs which consumed well over an hour before I emerged atop another meadow. I began to get views down into West Hartford and the White River Valley. A short while later I looked down and spotted the Interstate 89 Highway including its bridge over the White River. Even though it was early in the day and I pr had probably eleven miles to go, I began to feel as though I was getting there. I started a fairly steep descent and looked up to see a male hiker making his way up. I bellowed my patented, Hi, how are you doing? And he smiled, said hello, and kept on hiking as I stood aside. I noticed the iPod earphones plugged into his ears and figured I was interrupting some hip-hop hill-climbing ditty in E minor. I was also amazed at how effortlessly, effortlessly he seemed to climb past me, obviously in way better shape and much stronger than I, despite his large backpack. I descended along a switchback and looked up to catch a glimpse of him standing in the trail, leaning over his poles, breathing hard. Aha! Vindication comes in such delicious and unexpected ways. At the bottom of the hill, I crossed through a swampy area and then climbed over a small rise and into a neighborhood in West Hartford. The guide said turn left, so I did, and I walked along the paved road. I passed several houses and a side street and soon headed downhill, where a work crew was assembled in front of the bridge. A worker stopped traffic coming on my left so I could pass through. I thanked him, and then another worker asked if I needed any water. I said, no, I'm good, thanks, and walked across the bridge. They thought I was a hiker. Hey, wait a minute. I crossed the bridge and turned left on Vermont 14. In half a block, I sat on the steps of Rick and Tina's country store, now closed, and called Tumble to check in and report my position. We had a great chat, and I told her I thought I was on schedule to make it to Hanover by 5.30 p.m. I had nine and a half miles left and a little over seven hours until our rendezvous. She told me that a veggie bologna sandwich and fresh black bean and pasta salad would await me in Hanover, and that was more than enough culinary incentive for me to hoist on my backpack and continue on down the road. After I passed a couple blocks of houses while examining every object on both sides of the road for white blazes, I turned right on Tigertown Road and crossed railroad tracks and then bore left up a hill. Soon, the twin Interstate 89 overpasses came into view, and I recalled passing under this same highway in Jonesville, way back on our end-to-end -end hike in Ought 3. There were no shoulders under the overpass, and I scooted through while imagining a huge tractor-trailer entering on the other side. Fortunately, the big rig stayed in my imagination. I came to Podunk Road, turned right, then immediately re-entered the woods. After being in the open for so long, I felt protected by the woods, even though I could hear the roar of traffic on the interstate. The trail climbed steeply uphill, above Podunk Road, and I climbed with it. The path was covered with pine needles, which appeared orange against the green of ferns lining it. I heard the nearby sound of a train whistle as the train went over the tracks that I crossed just fifteen minutes prior. As I strained into the climb, I realized that when I got over the top, the highway sounds would begin to recede. I did, and they did, and in a half hour I recrossed Podunk Road and then arrived at Podunk Brook. 
It was now 11.15 a.m., and a perfect spot for water filtering. I would definitely need more water, and perhaps a spot of lunch. From this spot, I had about eight miles to go. After loading up on water and lunch, I climbed away from the brook and headed for the biggest elevation challenge of the day, Griggs Mountain. The Appalachian Trail rises from an elevation of about 400 feet at the White River to about 1,600 feet at the top of Griggs. Even though 1,600 feet is not very high as far as Vermont mountains go, the game is all about net elevation, and I was about to net a bunch of it. As I worked my way down towards a small stream crossing at the base of Griggs, I heard voices behind me and turned to greet Frank B. and Fancy Pants. They said, Hi, Ruff! And I realized that was me, and I returned the greeting. They were heading to Hanover, where Fancy Pants was planning to meet his sister and then attend a wedding before getting back on the trail. They decided to stop and filter water, so I said goodbye and asked them not to blow me off the trail as they sped by in the near future. I started up the Griggs climb and was grateful that I would get a head start before they discovered my depleted body gasping for air somewhere up the mountain. This was one of those times when I really would rather have been in a recliner clutching a cold, non-alcoholic brew, watching the Yankees pummel the Red Sox in a season-deciding game. Anything other than dragging my old body and 200-pound pack up a hill. I decided to use the one-step-at-a-time, here-we-go approach, which allows me to keep going and eventually get somewhere. The trail was actually nice, and this helped. I took several stops to get my heart rate down from beyond maximum, and halfway up, entered a small meadow with a junction sign pointing to Bragg Hill Road, wherever that led to. After 45 minutes of climbing, I reached the top. There was no marker to be seen, and kept going down to the junction trail for the Happy Hill Shelter. I had seen photos of this shelter on the Internet, and even though it was one-tenth of a mile down a side trail to the shelter, I decided to hike in and investigate. It was indeed a stone shelter with a metal roof and a ladder inside leading up to a loft at the back end of the building. I walked around and decided that the area was hammock friendly. The time was 12.45 p.m., and I was happy that I had decided previously to hike past this point and finish the hike today. It was way too early to be stopping to make camp. As I sat reading the shelter register, I heard the sound of someone hiking, but no one came into the area. I packed up stopped and used the privy, nice one, and hiked up to the junction, noting that this little sidetrack now upped my daily mileage to 14.3. At 1.10 p.m. I reached the junction, in time to see Fancy Pants approaching me. Apparently Frank B. had left him behind, and I noted to my uncompetitive self I beat both of them up the hill. Fancy Pants took a look, but decided not to visit the shelter to, quote, just to sign the register and we hiked together for about twenty yards before he pulled away on the downhill. Ah, youth! That plus an incredibly in-shape body. With over four hours for the final stretch, and a little over five miles to go, some of it in town, I reminded myself that I had plenty of time. The next three and a half miles was a slow, long slog through continuous woods with no views. The warm afternoon wore on, and I began to tire of the repetitive ups and downs. After a mile and a half, I crossed a dirt road leading downhill to a neighborhood the guide listed as Newton Lane. The trail went straight across, staying in the woods. There is always a part of the day 
where the muscles consider going on strike and energy levels begin to sink into the red. This was that part this was that part for me. I decided to pull out my secret weapon, the cliff bar I had been saving for just such an occasion. I stopped, opened my pack, and fetched it from my now empty food bag. Ah, cool mint chocolate, my favorite. I ate three quarters of the bar and savored every bite with a taste sensation that only long miles on the trail can deliver. As I stood munching, I watched a medium-sized bird fly through the trees. It was brown and white with a hint of dark red, and I surmised that it was a pileated woodpecker. It was probably heading for the Sanibel Lighthouse. Recharged, I shouldered the pack and continued on. By 2.30, I passed under a checkpoint power line that was six-tenths of a mile from Norwich and 2.4 miles from Hanover. After I ducked back into the trees, I stopped and called Tumble, hoping to catch her before she left. She was almost out the door when I called, and we both figured that I would probably be a little early. I said, See you soon, and we clicked off. I began to feel the excitement of actually finishing this section and thus achieving my goal of hiking all of the Appalachian Trail in Vermont and all of the White Blaze Trail in Vermont. I descended fairly steeply, steeply and by 3 p.m. came out at a trailhead onto Elm Street, a residential paved road in Norwich. The rest of the way was on paved road. I walked along at first downhill, then uphill, over a small bridge and past well-kept New England-style houses with green lawns and manicured landscaping. Soon I reached Vermont 5A at the green and turned right. The afternoon traffic was heavy and I felt a little bit out of place, but kept reminding myself that all AT hikers must pass this way. I had to cross the highway to stay on the sidewalk as the road approached Interstate 91 and became Vermont 10. Traffic was whizzing by and I just carried my poles in one hand and kept on walking. At 3.35 p.m., I passed right under the Interstate 91 overpass and caught sight of the Ledyard Bridge over the Connecticut River. I crossed the road again right before the bridge and paused in the center to take photos and linger at the Vermont-New Hampshire border. I officially entered New Hampshire at 3.43 p.m. and walked a short way up the sidewalk to a shaded area with a small area for a car to pull over. I did it. I relaxed in the grass and leaned against my pack as I waited for Tumble. To my surprise, I saw her coming up the road at 4.30, and I quickly motioned for her to pull over into the small space. We hugged and I loaded my gear in the car, and then we turned around and drove back home to Vermont. This has been a presentation of LongTrailPodcast.com. We hope you will return and enjoy future podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail. Until then, this is Rough of Rough and Tumble, Long Trail, End to End, 2003.